You're listening to The Agile CTO, a podcast geared toward technology professionals, disruptors, and thought leaders. This show will aim to cover industry trends, new technologies, the life of a CTO, building dev culture, stories from some of today's leading CTOs, and so much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where the industry is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the Agile CTO podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Harley Ferguson, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Guy Coleman. We had a great pleasure in interviewing Ben Deacon today. Ben used to be a part of Vic Assets, who we've had quite a bit of overlap with for the past couple of years. They've been a great partner of ours. And Ben recently started his own thing at Stravitzen Partners, and he's having a lot of fun there. We chat with Ben about the low-code, no-code world, about some of his life experience, lessons that he's that he's uh, learned over the years and kind of his hopes for the future. Guys, is there anything else to say about Ben? Yeah, you know, he's had such a storied education and qualification history as well. I mean, the, the guy was a manufacturing engineer, he's a management consultant in his past. He's a, he's a auditor, of course, and a sailor and a TV actor. So we'd love to we'd love to have you listen to the rest of the podcast. We'll jump right into it. The interview starts now. Thank you, everybody. Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the Agile CTO. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Ben, tell us a bit about you. Tell us a bit about your role, your journey. Give us your background. Gosh, where do I begin? So here we go. I'm, I'm sort of uh, a bit of a weird one. I'm an accountant. I'm a chartered accountant, but with a like a massive kind of techie thing going on as well, which I think served me quite well. But where do I begin? So let's start. I, I, I kind of my life's been defined by global financial crises so like when I left university I went to Cambridge and did manufacturing engineering and four years in great you know good university really happy with that great course let's go out and get a job and join the real world and then 9-11 happened and the sort of the chosen path at that time was to go down the management consulting route like 90% of the people in my course went uh, went down that road and I think it was I went for 15 first round interviews, 10 final round interviews and got zero offers because the, all the big guys were putting on a big beauty parade at that time. They just weren't recruiting at all. So that was a big old waste of time. So instead I took a year out, had a bit of time to travel, decided I know I want to become an auditor. So that was my big thing. So I, I joined PwC, which it transpired was a really good option. It was basically an extension of university where you basically get to get drunk again for another four years with a bunch of like-minded individuals, because quite frankly, audit is pretty boring. As you may sort of sure. have a suspicion, it's not all it cut out to be. But yeah, I think, where did it all begin there? I was kind of good at Excel, so I'm a financial analyst, and I kind of started using Excel and started using kind of quasi-databases to make my audit life a lot more straightforward. So it got to a point where I was kind of just pushing a button and it would do all the testing for me and spit out an answer. And just, I kind of started using technology to make my life less painful. So we're now sort of winding forward now, 2007, and two of my three older brothers, um, that's a whole new story if you want to talk about that one, about sort of abusive older siblings, this sort of thing. They showed me the light of the property industry, the real estate world. Uh, and so I decided to leave PwC for the Royal Bank of Scotland, or RBS, and join their property modeling team. And again, analyzing massive financial transactions all based on secured real estate. And that was sort of late 2007. And you might remember another global financial crisis that kind of happened around 2008. So yeah, there was, 
26 people in my team and when I joined and then by like six, nine months later after joining, it was just me and my boss, a guy called Paul Aubrey, left going, ah, what do we do now? So it was, uh, yeah, there's no longer any lending and we were into sort of kind of crisis mode and trying to make sure that what we'd lent on was actually what we lent on, which was sometimes not quite accurate, unfortunately. So Paul sort of said to me, he goes, right, Deeks. And I think, to be honest, the fact that I was the last guy left of all this big, massive analyst pool, all crunching Excel, either meant I was very good or very cheap. I suspect it was kind of a balance of the two. But he and I, he said, Deeks, we're going to need a spreadsheet. Um, sorry, Paul, if you're listening, that's, uh, that's my best impression. And uh, that spreadsheet kind of grew and we sort of started basically building a quasi-database in Excel. Again, this is RBS, so big behemoth bank, all the funding had been cut, and there was no money left for any kind of systems that you needed to sort of then change and evolve within the bank at that point. So it was a, a classic pivot. So we kind of went in and started building a database of all the loans, working out how far underwater those loans were, and just what the sort of the, how, how much in trouble lending book was. And, and needless to say, it was, it was up a certain creek without many ways to row. So that spreadsheet grew and uh, I was working with a guy called Joss Brushfield at the time and Joss and I have got the pleasure of working again with each other at the moment and uh, he and I devised uh, an access database now we're talking called Remit which we're very shuffled with and by the way I definitely named it Joss it wasn't you it was me uh, Remit stood for the real estate management information tool and we just kept on bolting stuff onto it so I sort of learnt access again necessity is the mother of invention and slowly but surely we sort of grew another team this time around restructuring loans and we kind of worked out uh, along with her majesty's government that the best way to actually maximize returns for the bank was to actually take the keys back from borrowers who were more than happy to give those keys back at that time Ben, I, I, I want to interrupt you there quickly. Does this does this does this lead into this dash for cash story that we found on BuzzFeed ah, yes. related to this this it RBS? It does indeed. It was, the, it was the West Register business. So this is the West Register was the kind of the, the property ownership wing that I was responsible for setting up. So we had the database, albeit in access, and I was Mister Procedure Manual as well. So I I built a um a hundred and one page procedure manual for the team who have grown now to, I think we're at the peak of the book. We, we started out when there was 18 million and we grew that book, owned real estate from previous sort of RBS lens to 5 billion globally. We had everything in there. We had like small developments. We had race courses. At one point they think they, they once took a zoo in, which was the worst mistake ever. Apparently there's, there's quite a lot of issues taking zoos back. And uh, so Buzzfeed, yeah, they did this, they leaked somehow got involved and found out all about the the West Register and the real estate business, the restructuring group. And uh, they leaked my procedure manual to the to the uh, to the world, which I'm very pleased about. It's uh, it's kind of it, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And uh, yeah, on every page is my name, although they redacted everybody else's names. And uh, yeah, so that was very kind of BuzzFeed. Thanks very much. It's it's amazing. And and just for for me, I'm an idiot. So I'm not I'm not quite clear on, on, on all the inner workings of this. So the BuzzFeed, uh, they've, they've sort of explained it in layman terms, but I must, I must be much more layman than, than their average reader because this is sort of going over my head. So I wonder if you could explain it to me like a five-year-old, just kind of give me a background of exactly what it is that makes this a little bit controversial. 
So, effectively, at the time there was a suggestion that we were, RBS was sort of incentivizing staff to repossess properties. There was no motivation to do that whatsoever. We certainly didn't want to be taking back properties. And the the twist was that, you know, we're using underhand tactics to snatch back real estate from the general public who we'd lent on, you know, originally. And and the general public being small businesses, not necessarily Joe Soap in the street kind of thing. Correct. Yeah, it wouldn't be, it wasn't sort of Mr. and Mrs. Miggins. It was kind of normally uh, larger commercial developments, that sort of thing. Yeah. I see. I see. And you're the architect of that. So congratulations. So you've got your name all over this document. <laughs> and <laughs> so I, I, can, I can imagine how that must have gone down back at that time. So, so how did you receive this sort of information? How did, how did you feel when this sort of leak came out? And There was quite a lot going on at that time. It was a very obviously political time. RBS had just been bailed out, you know, billions of pound rescue from the government. And uh, it, was, it was a time when there was a lot of learning going on and a lot of firefighting. You know, we had politicians involved. We had the government's asset protection agency involved as well. And then, you know, this, the BuzzFeed leak as well. So that was it was all going on. It was very interesting. But I'm glad to say that there was an independent review at it all, I should say. And they found nothing wrong with the procedures that we'd set up. So I should definitely say that, which which kind of makes me feel okay about it. It was all above board and everything was fine. It was just a, a nonsensical leak. Yeah. Okay, Ben. So after that leak... <laughs> well, they'll do anything to make a good story, won't they? True, true. After that leak, what were the, the the steps and the events that happened that led you to where you are now, Straverton? It was interesting because the the remit database kind of grew and we had at the end of it sort of five billion owned real estate on there and we were using that predominantly to, to manage the book. Um, and every time we found a new requirement, we bolt on another table, put another form on and roll it out. So managing health and safety, managing insurance, managing lettings, all this sort of thing we were doing through the day space. And we did evolve that to to have a proper back end on it. So it had a SQL back end with an access front. There was just a series of kind of politicians getting involved. And we were basically obvious we're told to, to scale back that book and unwind their position. So we, we then, in a sort of a very measured way, we, we then sort of took the properties to market. We did a few portfolio sales and uh, a few sort of opportunistic sales to, to unwind that book. And I left, I mean, I'd, I'd done my bit. I'd built the platform and there wasn't much more value I could add. So that was when I went on to to, to to do kind of the same thing, but for Oak Tree Capital. And so their American hedge fund, private equity fund, sorry. And I helped set up their captive or dedicated asset management platform for re- real estate across Europe and then latterly Asia. And that, that implementation was a low-code, no-code sort of approach to that platform, from what I remember, right? So that's sort of like the... The power automate using flow in 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 Azure to and and logic apps from what I remember. So what attracted you to that world as opposed to something more bespoke or custom? So where do we begin? It's easier to get your head around if you can see things and actually sort of kind of move stuff about. I think with the high code world, there's kind of a, a, a big learning curve, and with the low code, you could do like 80% of the functionality that you'd require from a high code world, but in sort of 20% of the time. And I think we got to a point where we were effectively prototyping in 
Microsoft 365, getting processes established using that. And then when the volume or the sort of reliability started to fall over, we were then able to replace that with a more sort of robust high code system. So we sort of built the cloud estate database with you guys with Havely, which was, um, that was a cool, cool experience in itself. But yeah, we certainly, there are limitations to, to low code, but in terms of just getting up and running really quickly, it's very cool. In fact, I can't remember, there's one of the guys on the, uh, on the, on the podcast also, I think two people have mentioned the fact that Power Automate is a good thing. So I'm number three at least on that list. Yeah, I'm, I'm very recently number four on that list myself. Okay, so Ben, you mentioned there that you're a big advocate for the you know no-code, low-code world and that you take it as far as you can before it reaches its natural limitations. Are there any other frustrations that you've had with that experience? And also, do you have a perception where you think the low-code, no-code world can go, where it will be five to ten years from now? Oh, this is good. Okay, so further frustrations, it's it's always moving and shifting, like there's a new stuff coming out you have to stay on top of it to to make sure that you know what's going on and you know there is no there's no there's no proper kind of application lifecycle management they they will push out a new update they'll give you some warning but that then would mean anything anything legacy may break if they haven't done it properly i.e they being microsoft so that is a frustration it's it's pretty good we've had certain things kind of fall over that way but that would be my sort of major frustration but on the flip side of that, what they are bringing out is super cool. You know, you can connect anything to anything. Just if it's got an API, you can hit it with Power Automate and you can integrate systems pretty easily. So that's pretty cool. Your second part of your question, the sort of the three to five years piece. It, I think that the, the big thing is going to be around resource availability, I think. And the, the, the rise of the citizen programmer, citizen developer, I think is going to be, there's going to be more citizen developers than there are proper real developers like yourselves who know stuff about technology which i think will be it'll, it'll be an interesting one to see how that rolls through but microsoft and and the, the wider technology community needs to make sure that it's done in a they, they sort of roll it on a in a way that things don't fall over thank you for calling us proper developers i'll take that as a compliment first off and and it's something that we as a business have been shying away from, which is the low code, no code. So proper developers, quote unquote, would probably look at low code and go, no, nah, that's not something I want to play with, right? That's, that's not technically challenging enough. But from what we've seen in, in, in recent times, that's definitely changing. As you say, right, it's, it's becoming so prolific. We are able to do pretty much anything we want to from a prototyping perspective. Obviously, there's certain scaling problems with it and, and there's certain limitations as you mentioned but the things that we've been able to do internally with power automate and power apps and power bi and all of these different power platform components at least for our line of business tools has been exceptionally powerful right and i think i wanted to maybe know from you do you think that it is it is as good for the b2c world as it is to uh, the line of business internal business applications I think the thing holding it back on the B2C world is the authentication piece. It's it's easy B2B because, you know, most people are on Office 365 and you can authenticate straight through single sign-on, boom, you're into either SharePoint Teams, Power Platform, whatever it may be. But B2C, you, you can't necessarily expect people to set up a Microsoft account to then authenticate to da-da-da-da. It's always a bit painful. So I think an interesting 
move from Microsoft at the moment is they're bringing out Power Apps portals, which is more and, and using Azure AD B2C. So you can authenticate using your LinkedIn or your you know social media profiles to, to actually access it. And I think they're pushing Power Apps portals as a way of accessing that B2C market and giving people an app. You can build your low-code app and present that to the marketplace. It, that's actually a sort of a legacy that's been brought in from the Dynamics world and they're sort of beginning to blend together the, the power platform and the and the dynamics world into one place so you find that the power apps portals developers are all historically d dynamics where um mm -hmm. they're used to developing for big corporates or you know in a very consultative way and you've got the very sort of small and agile world of the power and they're kind of this big clash in the middle where uh, you don't know which way, which people know most about Power Apps portals but i think that's an interesting one where you can actually roll out some pretty cool prototypes yeah. to the wider yeah. community very quickly. I would say, though, that the pricing is quite aggressive. <laughs> so that Microsoft yeah. definitely needs to do something there. And, and Ben, yeah. I'd like to take it back to what you called it. You mentioned that it was originally built, you know, Excel spreadsheet and then Access, and eventually you decided to go to .NET. And now it may have been a while ago, but maybe just for our listeners out there, what were the reasoning for you, the reasons behind eventually moving to .NET? Was it scalability? Was it the extra security? What was the driving factor there? There are a couple of factors. One was that the management at RBS realized rightly that you know there was a business risk there. A, with the fact that we had a lot of data on an access database, uh, and B, there was key man risk with myself there. And at that point, I think the restructuring group were pretty progressive. They had their own development team and they had already systemized things, parts of the business around the sort of credit approvals process, that kind of thing, using .NET. And so they found Remit and then brought us alongside that. So it was it's purely to sort of, to, to on that side, to minimize that, that sort of continuity risk and key man risk. The, the other side was that they actually wanted to expand it across the wider book as well. So not just the owned book, but we used it, the remit then was expanded to, to cover the rest of the restructuring group. So I think we was in, I think we had 25 billion on there uh, of the, the other assets in there too. So it, was, it had quite a big database in there. Cool. And, and Ben, I think there was a story you told me once about you appearing on uh, television at some point. So I changed <laughs> tack a little bit here and like get you to, to tell us a bit about that story. I'd love to hear the background here. I, I, I'm not sure it's been aired yet. So this is fairly cutting edge, guy. This wow, is, really? So, are, so this is so we got the scoop on this one. That's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we got a phone call from a close friend of ours, Charlotte Morley, who runs a, a sustainable kids clothing business called The Little Loop, and she's she's doing seriously, seriously well and has sort of won loads of competitions, loads of awards for her business, and she's sort of kind of changing. The paradigm uh, of how people approach clothes purchase. I mean, guy, you you've got the couple of toddlers there who I don't envy you. <laughs> but you know, you, you will be going through clothes like there's no tomorrow, right? And the idea being, her rental business kind of removes that that pain, and you literally wear the clothes until the kids run out, and then you send it back and and repeat. And so, interestingly, she won a, a competition, funnily enough, by NatWest or RBS my old employer and to have a tv bird made so she needed some you know relatively good looking people not gonna lie you know myself I, i'll take that. that that'll do the missus as well and our two kids ellie and sophie and we all went down to 
Camber Sands on the south coast of uh, England to uh, to film an advert for the day, and it was a, what, it was a day and a half, something like that, of filming for a thirty-second commercial. By the end of it, the girls were on their knees, crying, histrionics, the whole works, and uh, we had a lot of fun, kind of with pyrotechnics and flowing, throwing clothes in the air with like t-shirt cannons and all this kind of stuff. It was awesome, awesome. But yeah, brilliant. It it, it, uh, it airs in I think September, but the okay. funny thing, it was a baking hot day, and we had to use the autumn winter kind of catalog clothes so we're all there in like oh, great. long trousers jumpers pretending that it's kind of yeah it's autumn but no it's baking hot <laughs> well if it makes it way if it makes its way onto youtube please tag it in in the agile cto post when this goes live we'd love to be able to share it with the listeners so that they can watch it awesome. do you think there's a future in tv for you or is this your one shot i really am struggling to come to terms with the sound of my own voice and to see that on tv Luckily, I didn't have a talking part. I, I think I, that would be just a stretch too far, just too much. So Ben, you and I have overlapped quite a bit in the past uh, year or so, like you mentioned with the Cloud Estate and stuff like that. So I know you're quite an avid uh, runner. You you know you throw 10Ks and 15Ks around like it's... I want to know from a, you know, a, a physicality aspect, did you get into running just as a hobby? Is it a mental release for you? Is it a de-stressor? What's your, your motivator and the consistency behind running for you? It's an interesting one. So I, I, I used to cycle a lot. In fact, I, I sort of, I got into cycling. In fact, this is one thing, I, I, about 10, what was it, I was 30, I had bowel cancer. So you don't, this is something you didn't know, even in the pre-show notes. So yeah, age of 30, 12 years ago, found out I had bowel cancer and that left me luckily no chemo just a big operation took out half my innards and uh, all is good now and sort of 12 years all good so far but uh, to get fit after that I got into cycling because whenever I've been running before my knees have gone to crap and you know it all goes horribly wrong but the problem is to get a decent workout with cycling you have to go for three hours and so when it came to lockdown here in the UK I couldn't really afford three hours out of the house because we were kind of homeschooling and it was all kind of hard work so decided to pick up running and, and then because it was locked down found that it was actually amazingly good way of keeping fit way more efficient than cycling so I sort of ditched the bike got into running and I now sort of set myself a Strava target of 100ks a month which I haven't met for the last two months now because I've been too busy mucking about having fun in the sun but yeah it's definitely a mental release you should get into it you're not already Ben Congratulations on on overcoming cancer. That's a big one. What was your what was your headspace like when you found out about that news? I'm sorry, the, the, I know we're we're sort of jumping away from Harley's <laughs> running conversation here, but I think we need to dig into into a little bit of where Ben's head was during that time of your life. Yeah, well, the the, the funny it was back in 2009, and we got married in May, and then I, the symptoms showed, which was like basically I was bleeding out my butt. <laughs> you don't want oh, to cut that one it's great it's great good one no, we're keeping that it's going to be and, the, it's uh, going to be the quotes on one of the teasers listeners if you ever are bleeding out your butt go and see a doctor because you're never too young to have cancer put it like that but yeah within sort of four months of getting married i was on you know under the knife having having but to be honest headspace wise it was literally right ben you've got the big c here are the things that you would need to do to get rid of the big c and so i just jumped through the hoops you know what I mean? It was it was relatively right. easy for me because there was only one 
choice. There's a great Eddie Izzard sketch called Cake or Death. It's like, do you want cake or do you want death? It's like, well, I'll take cake, please. I'll have cake. Yes, thank you very much. So I took cake, which was easy for me. And it was a lot harder for my my wife and family, really, who were sort of scurrying around trying to help out. And I was there kind of, I looked like complete turd. I lost Jesus. two stone. There were all sorts of infections. I got E. coli, Clostridium, had a second operation, had a stoma, all this kind of thing. Had to have that reversed in four months after four months and uh, yeah it was quite an interesting time but it was it certainly makes you sort of a bit more humble about life and make sure you kind of keep it real it's it's something i've often thought about like if you're the person suffering in that in that situation if it's happening to you right i often wonder if it's harder to deal with not because you're dealing with the big c but you're having to deal with people that don't quite understand it who are who are sort of grieving for something that may never happen or wouldn't happen but you sort of have to be that support system for those around you so i I guess it's it it sort of adds to the complexity of the situation immensely i'm sure it does it does but i i I had to be i guess selfish at that point and just say right i just got to focus on getting my weight up getting the getting getting the infection away and just just recovering but it was it was a pretty interesting time but yeah I had four months out of work RBS were very supportive and in fact I'm sort of linked to this there's sort of the I'd written a blog about it and that was picked up during the the sort of the the BuzzFeed piece as well so yeah it was all kind of goes in circles I would have loved to link to that if you can find it that that would be a great read Ben, I'd just like to ask you one more question about this, if that's if that's okay. As someone who you know knows you and has worked with you, you are a ridiculously upbeat and positive person, and you mentioned you know how that experience taught you to to be humble and to you know kind of get some perspective. And a lot of what we chat about here is you know business and being agile and all of these things that I'm sure when you're looking at something like the big C, look kind of arbitrary. So are there any things that you're doing to this day, 12 years later, just to maybe put yourself in a more present situation, you know, not always think about, oh, if work goes well, I can do this, or if this happens, I'll feel better, but really just, you know, taking each day as it comes and enjoying the the subtleties of life that aren't in the office? I think it's interesting because I'm, I mean, I'm, I've just come out of Victoria Asset Management and, you know, it, it's been a long time coming I've sort of been trying to get my head what I wanted to do next because again much like RBS Vic Asset had its kind of natural its natural closure for me and so I've been kind of prepping myself to get to a point where I can sort of take some time out and work out what I want to do for myself and so um, interestingly setting up Stabbers and Partners the, the new thing has allowed me to kind of assess what I enjoy and so even now when I'm working I'm just enjoy. It doesn't feel like work anymore. It sounds so cheesy to say that. It really doesn't sound like work, and I'm I'm just having a hell of a lot of fun, stripping back all the stuff. You know, I I, I used to have compliance, human resources, corporate accounting, systems, IT. You know, cybersecurity. That you name it. I was the chief multitasking officer, and I've been able now to sort of get myself to a point where I can just pick the interesting bits of that, the stuff that gets me out of bed, and just do that all the time. So th- that is awesome <laughs> and that's where i am now which is great and i think everyone each every five years kind of just stop and reassess and go what is it about my current job that i do not enjoy and i think getting out as well 
COO, being a COO is a very internally facing role and you're dealing with the same people a lot of the time, dealing with different issues, which is great, great experience. But to be able to get out and talk to new people and do crazy podcasts and all this kind of stuff is, is, is awesome. So good. Right, Ben. So manufacturing engineer, management consultant, auditor, controversial architect of life-ruining decision-making within a business, presumably, and cancer survivor. You've, you've, you've had one of the most storied careers for sure, right? But there's one more embarrassing thing I'd like to raise, and that's the fact that you're a sailor. <laughs> Ooh, uh... Is that right? <laughs> This is correct, yes. We've just isolated part <laughs> yes, of our audience, yeah. but okay. Do you have a uniform? <laughs> Hopefully not too embarrassing unless you know something I don't. Tell us about it. What what kind of boats do you sail? Cool. So, sailing, again, this is it. It's, it's the classic thing when people ask, what do you do to relax? You go, I go sailing. Like, you just, just get out on the water. So, I come from... Uh, the sort of the dinghy racing world. So I used to race a laser dinghy quite seriously, spent a lot of time doing that. I used to race against the likes of Ben Ainsley, kind of Olympians, this sort of thing. I was definitely, just so we're clear, I was not that good, right? I was always kind of like top of the B team type levels. But yeah, this is around sort of 2000 where uh, I just spent a lot of time and money pursuing sailing because I just enjoyed it. It's like kind of chess on water. So you've got the physical aspects, you've got the tactical side, you've got the mental all this kind of stuff it's 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 a seriously cool sport and it, it, it makes you a good sailor when it comes to the big boats as well so now i've kind of now i've got the the family we've kind of got a small yacht it's what 10 meters so we go sailing around the east coast of the uk and again it's a new challenge so we are we take that around just finding new places and and planning passages this kind of stuff and in fact, our next trip, we're going to go and see the Ever Given, which is just docked in Felix around the corner from us. So the, the, the famous boat which blocked the Suez Canal. So we're going to go and see that this weekend, we think, if the weather's good. It looks quite windy, but that's our, our goal. And amazingly, at the same time, the largest boat in the world has docked at the same time, which is like a wow. six-masted kind of behemoth at Harwich. So we're going to go and have a look at that too. So it never stops on the East Coast. It really doesn't. Wow, being so a competitive sailor, so it's it's racing. That, that that that's the thing that gets me. I, I yeah, I've got to I've got to get back into that bit. There's only so much exploring you can do, and kind of anchoring and diving off, and all that sort of thing you can do before you start thinking. Yeah, I want to get back into that. Ben, you were chatting about basically how you know every day you're you're loving it and you love what you're doing, and you get to pick the best parts. Is there anything specifically? Maybe it's the freedom of having started your own your own thing now. But is there anything specifically that stands out to you as a, a really big win? My time at RBS, kind of, I, I think I was relatively well respected because I was a kind of a geek without being a geek, which is kind of an I'm an accessible geek, high functioning maybe or something like that. I don't know. I haven't quite worked it out. A bit like you guys, really. I think we're kind of same <laughs> same mold maybe, and that obviously that whilst that wound down everyone went off to do new things and the kind of my network has grown immeasurably and i sort of when i was finishing up with vic asset joss and uh, richard white from Adinerson asset management got in touch and sort of said oh do you want to do you want to have a chat to uh, a client of ours and so sort of client number one for me is um is i have to under under nda but it's a uh, it's a 
it's a big deal in the property world, the client that I'm working for. And, and that for me is the sort of, to get a, a big name on the CV day one of launching Staverson Partners is, uh, is a massive win, I hope. As long as I don't screw it up too badly. But so far, so good. And we're, we're doing quite a lot on the Power BI piece at the minute. So it's, there's a kind of a large shopping center element to the development. And I'm kind of taking the existing, I guess, cottage industry financial analysis world that they're currently using to sort of to run the, the MI and beginning to sort of do the, the I guess you'd call it digital transformation where you would where we're kind of taking parts of that centralizing it improving the models and then surfacing that through Power BI and uh, I've had a lot of fun recently building out floor plans and kind of color coding them using Power BI which is awesome fun. Well that's great congratulations on the on the big client win there and if uh, maybe let's explore the opposite of that question what are you currently fighting what's your biggest frustration at the moment what's uh, the hardest thing you're dealing with right now <laughs> it's resourcing it's always resourcing what i need what i need guy is a really good technology partner all right i think we can help you he's it resourcing it it's like how, how do you kind of take ben and multiply me by five without having to manage lots of people that is very tricky and I, I don't know I, I'm working with Ewan at Vendata at the moment actually he's helping me out on the uh, on the data side of things and I think the sort of the, the the challenge for me is getting the right approach so that the the solutions I develop are sustainable and can be looked after by the business so you know the businesses that will be stabs and partners will be working with are big enough to to have and to sustain this and grow the technological kind of skill set in-house but it's how you kind of get them up to speed and i i'm guilty of living like 10 miles running 10 miles ahead and looking back and going guys where are you so i need to sort of stop come back bring people on the journey with me uh, and that's my that's my kind of challenge at the moment is how i do that in a in a scalable way with the right resources so i don't blow up and ben just to maybe take it a, a different direction Outside of the tech world and outside of being a self-proclaimed swimsuit model, as, as you said, what is your current thing? The, you know, something that you find interesting or that you lost a little bit of brain cells, as we often put it, at the end of the day is thinking about that doesn't really have anything to do with your, your job or something like that. Oh, my thing. All I'm thinking about is job at the minute. That's the worst thing. It's terrible. It's like, how do I make things better? How do I help people? without you know with that's my my thing is helping people and to be honest i sort of it i could do what i'm doing at the moment without being paid because i'm just enjoying it too much although that's not going to help pay for the kids to live but you know we'll cross that bridge so yeah it's 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 just working out how to approach things and so i'm just working on that my brain is working on that 24 7 content so it's it's kind of a not a work thing but it's a work thing at the same time without sounding cheesy and your wife supports you in your in everything that you're doing. I presume it's sort Absolutely. of like she's very oh, understanding. Thank you, Em, for everything you do for me. Because <laughs> 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 I'm more fun. I'm, I think I'm more fun to be around now that I don't have to deal with kind of other stuff that I don't enjoy. So yeah, that's fantastic. My retro gaming YouTube channel is is the hope for me in that in that respect. But I don't think there's much money in it, so we'll we'll have to kind of we'll have to kind of wait and see. Okay, so this next section that we want to talk about here, Ben, is what we call our quick fire round, right? 
this is a couple of questions just to help our audience get to know you a little better, you as an individual. Um, so don't take too long to answer the questions. Let's let's see if we can get them out as close to the metal as possible. But, you know, let's see how we go. I'm going to start with the first one. Harley will ask the next one and so on. We'll get through about five of these questions and hopefully know you much better. Okay. So the first one I'd like to ask is, what's your latest must-read or must-watch or must-listen book or article or whatever and why? Read a book recently. It starts with why. Simon Sinek, classic. Again, uh-huh. lots of soul searching, trying to work out what it's all about. I think it's kind of like a, I guess it's the modern equivalent of a midlife crisis, although I didn't come out with a, just read a book and didn't buy a sports car. But that certainly helped kind of work out what it's all about and stripping things back to the important things in life and, and then allows me to kind of move forward in the right direct listening wise i hate to say it, tim ferris podcast is great it gets pretty esoteric but it's 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 cool it's good listen well worth doing and then watching tv wise we're going through the friends box there at the moment uh-huh. revisiting that that's pretty cool it's the go-to right whenever there's oh. nothing to watch nothing to do put on some friends no i get that <laughs> and ben your most professionally influential person in your life right now who's you know keeping you on your toes or influencing you or inspiring you the most right now i would have to say sort of closer to home charlotte morley so that the, the girl who's uh, setting up little loop the clothing function clothing business she's like really super inspiring at the moment doing some great stuff and I'd, i would love to learn some things from charlotte at the moment further away from home again tim ferris he's he's doing some pretty cool stuff and kind of definitely my go-to inspirational podcast apart from this one of course and then i i think there's some really cool stuff going on in the 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 sort of uh, the office 365 microsoft space as well so Layla garani she does some really cool kind of snippets got loads of copy goes out and content on her youtube channel she's just hit a million subscribers just going through the basics of office 365 the new stuff that's coming out really accessible and it's a way of geeking up in a really accessible way okay cool and what about an opinion that others have about you that you find most frustrating so i i i I suffer really badly from imposter syndrome i think i say i think because if you say that you probably don't but i definitely it's something i can identify with and so i i tend to think that people don't have an opinion of me and this is getting all kind of a bit weird but like then then yeah i it's weird that people might have an opinion of me because I'm I'm not too big a deal for them to have one. Anyway. I can see that. I can see that. <laughs> I, I think I think I suffer a little bit of the same. I definitely suffer from, from that, but it's not about me, it's about Ben. Ben, what do you think your most controversial opinion is? You mentioned a couple of things here that I definitely uh agree with you know low code no code we're also very big simon cynic fans here i'm a big tim ferris fan so what do you think your most controversial opinion is i'm i'm i want to see you i want to see you break i want to see something i disagree with here i would say that low code coupled with a solid process is 10 times better than high code harley my job dictates that i must disagree but (laughs) that's a rough one (laughs) You're taking work away from me, Ben. <laughs> look at it. Look at it as creating a new pillar of the custom dev industry, right? Let's look at it that way. Yeah, we go. And fixing yeah. things when they inevitably go wrong. It's a whole <laughs> new ro- ro- road work. <laughs> For sure. 
And then, Ben, what are you currently procrastinating over? What's not getting the attention from you that it deserves? My website, I think, because I'm too busy to get it fixed. <laughs> it's quite annoying. GoDaddy, I've got a, I think it's a managed WordPress site, and GoDaddy decided to update it, and they broke it for me. So that was oh. good, and I now can't access it. So I currently have no web presence. So that's really good. Chuff with that, but I don't have time to fix it. So if you know somebody can help me, let me know. I may know a guy. All right, let's wrap up. Thank you, Ben. That's it. That's the end of the that's the end of the episode. How how can our listeners get hold of you and find you on the internet? I know you don't have a website at the moment, so they just have to put up a smoke signal or is there any social media? Yeah, the smoke signal goes to stavisonpartners.co.uk or it's uh Stavison underscore UK at Twitter or we're on LinkedIn as well. Those are the main channels at the moment. Awesome. Thank Thanks, you so ben. much, Ben. At Hayfully Software, we build dev teams that deliver and fix those that don't. Dev teams fail to deliver all the time for countless reasons, from lack of skills to barriers and culture, from politics to process, from silos to egos. Whatever the reason, it's time they deliver. This is why we exist. From enterprise to startups, we craft high-performance dev teams focused on end-to-end delivery. Visit Hayfully Software at OutsourceHS.com to learn more. You've been listening to The Agile CTO. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening with Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave a quick rating of the show. Simply tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.